0: Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Thank you for worshiping with us this morning. Thank you guys for leading us in worship in such a genuine and true and authentic way. If you would grab your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 1, we're gonna be in Ephesians chapter 1, Uh, uh, this morning. We're gonna be in verses 15 through 23. And kids, I hope you're still with me. We've sang some songs, we've worshiped through music, and now we're gonna worship the study of God's Word. This is how God has chosen to reveal Himself to us today. It's through His Word. Uh, And it's not just another textbook. It's not just another thing to read. These are the words of God that contain power um, to shape you for life and and godliness, according to Timothy. So we're gonna study that this morning. Um, Let me just give us a few Quick truce that's going to carry us through, and kids, you can pay attention to this. First is this that God is good. Uh, if we don't get anything else this morning, I want you to understand God is good, that He is who He says He is, that everything He does and intends to do, His desires are for His good pleasure, He is good. If we can trust that God is good, we're going to be able to progress through life in a way that brings us true peace. So, first of all, is that God is good. And second, you need to know that God is in charge. Uh, Kids, you're not in charge. Your parents aren't in charge. God is even in charge of your parents. Uh, The the biblical word we use is that God is sovereign, but it just means that God's in charge. So you have to understand both of those things about God because to just believe one and not the other is gonna give you a misconception of who God is. If God is good, but he's not in charge, it doesn't really mean much to us. Then he's a good friend. He can hang out with us. We like spending time with him. He's good. He's good. But if he's not in charge, doesn't control anything, then we can't really depend on him to fix anything or to save us. And if God is in charge, but he's not good, then he's just a cruel teacher. He's just a cruel dictator who does whatever he wants because he wants to. But we believe that God is good and he is in charge. And that carries us into why, how we study scripture to believe and know these things to be true. That's why we sing songs that we sing, because we believe he is good and he is in charge. All right, we're gonna be in Ephesians 1 this morning, 15 through 23, and Paul, uh, just so we know, Paul, this is a prayer that Paul has written for the church at Ephesus. Paul wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus. We call it Ephesians, and in this letter, um, he's writing from prison in Rome. So understand his context when he's writing this prayer to these people in Ephesus. We know the end of their story. We know in Revelation 2 that the church at Ephesus abandons their first love, uh, they got, I think they got prideful in their cleanliness. They got prideful in what they knew about God, but had neglected confession, had neglected admitting uh, that they've wandered off the path, that they don't have it all together. So they gotten too clean. So we know the end of it. Uh, and then we know the beginning of kind of how, how they started. So he writes this letter to the church at Ephesus. And have you ever noticed that um, things that you connect to emotionally seem to last longer than things that you were just taught mentally in school? Uh, maybe uh, for me, it was always history. It was always the hardest thing for me because I just had to remember it. I liked math because I could figure it out. But like history, I just had to remember dates and remember people. And most of them were European and I didn't even care that much about that. And so it just, it was hard for me. But the things that I remember from high school are songs from my senior prom. I remember, uh, I remember some, some songs from driving around in my car with with, with my friends. I remember songs from like walk-up songs from baseball. I remember pregame songs. I remember those things, right? Anybody else with me? You remember songs. You remember things that you can connect to emotionally, um, but the things that you just know mentally kind of fade in, in the background a little bit. Maybe for some of us, what you have connected to emotionally is maybe it was the first time you met your child or your children. It was maybe the day they were born and you met them, the day you met them at the adoption agency or in the hospital. And the first time you met your kids, just emotionally, there was something that happened to you. There just was something emotionally that happened to you. You were excited. You might have been disappointed, but there's something, some way you connected emotionally to that moment. And what we learn and what psychologists tell us is that whatever we connect to emotionally, whatever we connect to in our heart is going to transcend the thing of the present moment that um, happened to us. So let's take our kids for example. You remember the moment you first met them and how beautiful they were, how special, how significant that moment was. You've been waiting for months. You've been praying for them for years and you finally meet this child, right? Um, And then in 13 years, they, they become little little adolescents, they become, they become teenagers. Um, and then that memory of them as a baby, if we're not careful, it can get lost, right? Because now they're just this 13 year old twerp that has a really hard time obeying what I tell him to obey or her to obey. And I tell him to put the phone down. He, can, he tells me, you don't put your phone down. And then, so you have this whole conversation. But what happens is, and maybe you've had this experience where you've disciplined your child or you've had that frustrating kind of moment Maybe you're better parents and you haven't had that, but if you, you've had that moment, but then somehow there's just something like, oh, but I just love him so much. Like, I just care about him. Like, it's, I, I, you genuinely want them to be okay. And there are moments in the good parts of our parenting when we discipline because we actually care so much about their hearts. We want to protect them. And so even when you're gritting your teeth, I love him. I love you. I love you. Even in those moments, what happened 13 years ago emotionally is transcending what's happening in the current circumstances. For those of us who are married, it might have been, um, you've remembered the wedding day. And, and as a groom, you remember that, that moment when you first see your bride for the first time. I'm old school, old fashioned, so it was when the doors opened of the church and you, I saw her for the first time from the stage and wept like a baby. And those, right, and then that happens or maybe the first time you met your spouse, um, And then as marriage goes on, there are moments when it's a little more frustrating to be married than it was in that moment, right? There are those moments. You've been hurt, you've been disappointed, you've been betrayed by your spouse, but yet there's something that's so deeply impressed upon your heart that it's like that's more important than the current circumstance. And yes, this hurts, but I'm not going anywhere. This hurts, but I love you. And sometimes what happens for us in the church is we veer away from emotion uh, because we know the Bible teaches us that the heart is deceitful above all else. And that's true, that's scriptural. We know that to be true. But I think we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater too often. And what's happened for us is we've raised a really um, knowledgeable generation of Christians maybe. Uh, maybe you've memorized scripture and you know things. But when, uh, when the hell comes, when the valleys come, the things that we know in our minds aren't gonna carry us through to the other side. If you just knew that you loved your spouse or you knew things about her, when the hard times financially came in your marriage, you would have never made it through, but it's because there was an emotional knowledge about her or about him that carried you through. So Paul writes this letter, and in this prayer, he's going to pray for the emotional knowledge of the church at Ephesus. And I, I want us to go there this morning I I don't want us to be afraid of emotion. I think the Lord, in fact, emotes. I think he has passion. And to connect to even the Lord is gonna require something for us in our hearts this morning. And particularly as guys, we don't like that. Um, I wanna encourage us to get there, and here's why. Because the most powerful weapon you will have in the valley is your emotional knowledge about who God is. The things you've memorized are going to fail you if they aren't connected to something you've experienced about God. Does that make sense? Uh, And I just know this to be true from my own life and from what I read in scripture. So let's go in Ephesians chapter one. Paul's in prison writing this letter. Verse 15, he says, for this reason, that's what Paul's way of reminding us of verses three through 14, because our salvation is rooted in what he has done for us, not what we have done for him. For this reason, and because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. So Paul is praising the church at Ephesus. Hey, there's two things you've done well. you loved God and you've loved others, which sounds a lot like what Jesus says when he sums up all the commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So on the surface, this church is doing it. Like they're doing what God has called the church to do. But I love Paul because Paul is not going to settle there for the church, he's gonna pray for more for them. And when I look at our church, I look at Sharon, I, I think we love God, I really do. I, I think when I've, the interactions, conversations I've had with many of you and in our small groups and in Bible studies, there's a desire to love God. And I think we genuinely care for each other. We provide meals, we, um, we pray for people, we visit in the hospital when we were allowed to do that nine months ago. We, we do those types of things, we care for each other. But like Paul we, I think we as elders, as leaders, we wanna pray this same thing for us. I think there's more for us besides that, beyond that. I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. You love God and you love people, verse 16. He says, I, don't, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Ephesians has two prayers in it, one here in chapter one and another one we'll study in chapter three. So he's gonna give us, here's what he prays for the church at Ephesus, Paul, while he's in prison. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is verse 17, the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. So quickly, let's see what he's praying. He's praying that God would give the church at Ephesus a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Wisdom, if you're taking notes, wisdom is just applied knowledge. Um, Knowledge is just things that we know, but wisdom is knowing how to apply that knowledge. It's the difference uh, between a father and a son. It's the difference between a grandfather and a son. A, the son might have knowledge because he watched a YouTube tutorial of how to change his oil, but the father has wisdom of, nope, I've tried that before. That's not how you apply that knowledge. That's not even the right tool. That's, this is wisdom versus knowledge. He wants them to have the spirit of wisdom, applied knowledge, and revelation. Revelation is disclosed knowledge. Um, Not even knowledge that you can necessarily learn, but it has to be revealed to you. It has to be disclosed. Something that was once hidden has now opened up to you. You see behind the curtain. So Paul is praying to the Lord for the church at Ephesus, and he says, would you give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation, but there's a purpose to it, not just to be wise, not just to see things behind the curtain. For this reason, in verse 17, uh, in the knowledge of him, in the knowledge of, of God. I pray to God that he would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. All right, so this word knowledge, we're going to have to do a little bit of word study here. And I don't want to do too much with Greek because then it makes us feel like we can't read the Bible in English. But uh, we don't have great translations in our English language for some Greek words. They have a lot of words. We don't have as many. We're very simple when it comes to language, uh, which is why we spell things differently that sound the same, and then we have the same words that mean different things. It just gets confusing. The Greek language is very specific. Paul's gonna use two different um, forms of the word knowledge or to know in this passage, so it's important we know both of them. There's three different ones. Uh, The first one is ido, ido, and that means to know intuitively or instinctively, it means to perceive immediately. Um, Ido is how we know that red is red and blue is blue and green is green it's just we just perceive it and we know it think about it this is this is mind kind of knowledge it's it's on the top of your mind you don't see a color and then have to go research well I I mean I don't know is it red Um, that type of thing Uh, that's how we know numbers that, that's, this is ido to know intuitively, to know instinctively. We just, we, just know, we just know we have to eat. We just know we have to sleep. This is instinctive or perceptive. The second Greek word is gnosis, which is to know experientially. Experientially. So you might know that red is red and orange is orange, but to experience it is to know that you put red with yellow and you get orange. To know experientially. This is how we know things with our body. We have to experience it. Anybody that's coached a sport before, you know so there are plenty of kids who know what to do in their head, athletes, um, but they don't necessarily, it doesn't translate to how they use their bodies. I'm one of them. Like the, we know, like we've, we've been coached for a number of years and we know what we should be doing. We just can't quite get our bodies to do it. It's why we have something called muscle memory. Once your body does it, then you know it. That's what gnosis is. And there's this one that goes a bit further, which is epigenosis which is to know transformationally. This is to know in such a way that it actually changes things, that you actually know it intimately, you know it emotionally, to know transformationally. Think of any type of knowledge that you know that has changed your behavior, changed the way you live your life. Oftentimes it starts with Ido, it turns to gnosis, and then finally it becomes epigenosis. There's a journey it takes, but this is what it means. So in verse 17 where Paul says... um, The knowledge of him, this is the word epigenosis. Paul's prayer is that the church at Ephesus, God would open their eyes, that they would um, have wisdom and they would have, um, what's the next word? You know what it is. That they would have wisdom and revelation to epigenosis God, to know him transformationally. And just real quick, I think this is where many of us struggle when it comes to knowing God. I think many of us um, in our churches in the South, we Ido God. I'm not sure that we epigenosis God. We know enough of him to make us look good to people around us, to get Awana awards or to um, put good Christian posts on Facebook, but I'm not sure we have transformational knowledge of God. And Paul's prayer for them is that they would move beyond loving God and loving others to this transformational knowledge of who he is. But Paul knows we don't just get there um, on our own will. We don't get there on volition. So he continues in verse 18. Here's how he wants them to get there. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. And we know hearts don't have eyes. We know that's not physiological. But what he's saying is having, um, having it get to your heart. Having it enlightened. Having your hearts lit up. That you may know. Now, this word is Ido, to know intuitively. So, let me try to summarize to catch us up. What Paul wants is for God to give the church at Ephesus a spirit of wisdom and revelation that they might transformationally, emotionally know God in such a way that these three things he's gonna ask them to know are at the top of their mind. What he's saying is, I want there to be such a depth of who you are, God, that the people at Ephesus intuitively uh, ascribe to that, that when they face the valley, when hell or high water comes, they instinctively know who you are. Does that make sense? I think many of us, it sits here in our heads, but there's a limit to that. It kind of runs out over time. But if we know it from the wellspring of our hearts, then it continues to flow to the top of our mind. So I hope that makes sense as we continue moving forward. Here's what the three things Paul wants the church at Ephesus to know about God. Continue in verse 18, that you may know, that you may idol, you might instinctively know what is the hope to which he has called you. So if you're taking notes, there's three things. The first thing is hope. God wants us, or Paul wants the church at Ephesus to know the hope of God, the hope of God. And he wants them to know it in such a way that it's built on the the transformational knowledge of the character of God, the hope to which he has called you. Which takes us back to verses three through 14, that the gospel, our salvation, rests in him alone, not in us. And if we know that, if it's the hope of him who called you, not the hope of my own behavior, not the hope of my sinlessness, uh, not the hope of my church attendance or the hope of my Bible memorization, but the hope of him who called you, the hope in which he has called you. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that we know, we epigenosco, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are Called according to his purpose or according to his good pleasure. So what is the hope of your calling? That God is good and he is in charge. That's the hope of your calling. And Paul wants the church at Ephesus for that to be on the top of their mind always. The hope of their calling. It's the same, that's my prayer for us. It's my prayer for my kids and my wife. I want them to know that at the top of their mind is that God is good and he is in charge. And that God, even when you don't see it, he's working all things together for the good of those um, who love him and who are called according to his purpose. So that's the first thing he wants. Secondly, uh, this next what are, and what are the riches? He wants you that they may know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. This is in verse 18. He wants them to know the hope to which God has called them and the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. Notice the word that comes before the saints. It's the word "in." We can get distracted here and think it's talking about our inheritance, like our salvation, our goodness from God, but it's not. It's God's His inheritance in the saints. So, big biblical concept: We are God's inheritance. We are God's good portion forever. Deuteronomy 32 says that the Lord's portion, his inheritance, what he gets is his people, which if you know yourself feels like a ripoff. Like we get God, he gets us. Okay, but we are his inheritance. But it tells us a few things. Um, If you're close to getting an inheritance or if you have aging parents or an aging grandparent, what, you've, what you probably recognize is you are very cautious and careful of how your parents spend their money because you realize pretty soon their money's gonna be your money. And when your daddy at 90 years old goes and buys a Ferrari, you understand. You're spending my money on a Ferrari. We need to have a conversation about you driving Ferraris and about whether or not you know how to spend money that's mine. We are protective of our inheritance aren't we? We're protective of that. Doesn't make us good children, just makes us human. We're protective, we're protective of that. If we are the Lord's portion, the Bible also says that we are his prized possession. All rooted back in 3 through 14, we haven't done anything to earn his earn that. He just loves us that much. Then he's going to fight for us as well. So two things this will help us here to know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What are the riches well, first of all, is that God is always with us. He knows that to protect his, his inheritance, he's gonna have to be there. Romans 8, 38 through 39 tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not Height or depth, not powers and principalities, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And maybe this morning, that's what you need to hear. As a child of God, there's nothing that can separate you from his love, nothing. No man can pluck you out of the father's hand. is with us. Secondly, that God is always for us. This is Romans 8, 31. If God is for us, then who can be against us? If we are his inheritance, he's with us and he fights for us. Paul wants the church at Ephesus not just to know this mentally, but to know this transformationally so that it comes to the top of their mind. And so why is this important? Well, you've been there. You know why this is important. Because in the seasons when it feels like God is not for you, when it feels like God's actually working against you, when God's not answering your prayers the way he wants you to, or that you want him to, when God feels against you, you have to know in your heart that you can instinctively recall, no, 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 he's for me. He's for me. This feels like he's not, but I know he is. So this cancer diagnosis, it feels like God's trying to punish me, but I know better. I know in my heart that he is for me, so instinctively I recall that first. And that's the truth you speak to the lies that you believe. So Paul wants the church at Ephesus, wants their eyes to be open, the eyes of their hearts to be open, to know the hope of their calling and their worth in God. You, he has worth. Those are the riches of inheritance. Verse 19, the third one. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? So the inheritance was in the saints. The power is toward the saints, toward us who believe. This is immeasurable greatness. That just means you can't even measure how great this power is. We have no way to measure it. But he's gonna tell us about this power. Verse 19, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So Paul could have gone many different directions when talking about the power of God. In fact, I think I probably would have gone different directions from this. Paul could have talked about the majesty of the mountains. He could have talked about the power in a thunderstorm or the waves. He could have talked about what many hymn writers wrote about. But Paul chooses to talk about the power of the resurrection of Christ. This is how he defines this immeasurable greatness of the power that is towards us. He refers to the resurrection, which is interesting. But if you think about it, what is more powerful than bringing something dead back to life? Creation is powerful, but creation makes something out of nothing. It starts neutrally, it starts at zero. But resurrection power, that starts at a disadvantage. Resurrection power starts at negative. It starts with destruction. So for those of us who are math nerds and those of us who hate math, I'm still gonna talk about it. Um, it's, It's in this way. If you picture a number line and you've got zero right here, creation power starts at zero and then goes positive. Resurrection power starts back here at negative five, negative 10, negative 15, and still makes its way into a positive number. It takes all this work just to get back at zero, to then begin the building. He has to reconstruct what has been deconstructed. So if creation is bringing life out of nothing, resurrection is bringing life out of death. And this is greater, and you know it's greater. And it's also why God doesn't demand a clean slate from you. God doesn't work with clean slates. God works with destruction. He works with death. He works with sin. And then he turns it into life. He doesn't need you to be perfect. That's not where he's made his name. That's what he's famous for. He's famous for taking dead things and bringing them to life. Here it's as if Paul is saying that God not only creates good stuff out of nothing, he creates good stuff out of bad stuff. This is what Paul wants the church at Ephesus to know, that he brings life out of death. So here's what it means for us today. Whatever is dying in you, whatever relationship you feel is dead or is dying, whatever career you feel is dead or is dying, because of the gospel and the resurrection power of God, they do not stay dead because God brings life from death. He doesn't need a clean slate. He needs what you have to offer, and then he brings life from it. And I think we know that mentally, and we know how to celebrate that every year come Easter. I just don't know that we epigenosis God in such a way that what's on the top of our mind is, I know it feels dead, but he's gonna bring life out of it. This prayer that Paul is praying for the church at Ephesus is not that they would settle for loving God and loving others, but that from there would create this transformational knowledge of who God is. But it doesn't stop here. He's gonna talk more about this power. Uh, raised Christ from the dead, and it continues, and seated him at God's right hand in the heavenly places, which made him far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Resurrection power doesn't just bring dead things back to life. Resurrection power comes with authority, that God has placed Jesus in authority over every power Both seen and unseen. He is more powerful than demons, more powerful than the devil, more powerful than angels, more powerful than Hitler, more powerful than Nero. He is more powerful than every power and dominion, every rule and authority. And then look at verse 22 and he put all things under his feet and then gave him as head over all things to the church. So God raised Jesus from the dead, resurrection power that creates authority. God sits in authority over every power of the world, and then God chose the church and said, I'm not just gonna make Jesus an authority over the church, I wanna make him an authority in the church, which means that we, as his body, have the fullness of that same resurrection power. So, whatever is dead in your life because of the gospel of Jesus. Because of the hope to which he has called you, because of the riches of his inheritance in the saints, you have resurrection power in your veins too and whatever is dead can be brought to life. He fills us with the resurrection power. Which is the beauty of the gathering of the saints together is that when we start assembling, the power of God starts moving. And so yes, what happens in this room can bring dead things to life based on the authority that God has given Jesus over all things. That's the difference. This authority is in the church, not just over, but in us. So Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus is that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation. He would open unseen things and teach them how to apply it in this transformational knowledge of God. But here's the thing for us. This is a bit somber for us. There are three ways as you read scripture and as you've experienced your own life that echo this, that God reaches into the eyes of our heart. There are three ways, I believe, that God um, gives us a transformational knowledge of him. Uh, The first one is pleasure. Some of us have had the gift of a mountaintop experience with the Lord that has transformed our lives. It could have been a youth camp you went to in high school, that you were one of the few that it actually impressed itself upon your heart deeply, and you have never wavered and wandered from that. And what a gift that is, that God would choose pleasure in which a way to grant you uh, this transformational knowledge of him. Secondly is persistence or perseverance. Many of us, uh, maybe you were just, you were born on the front pew at your church, like in the doctor spanked you and you said, hallelujah, and that—that's you know Jesus from then. And all you've done is just walked step by step the best you can. And over the period of five, 10, 15, 30, 50 years, you've just grown in an epigenosis, transformational understanding of God and what a gift that is. But as I look at scripture and look at my life and the life of those that I love and are around me, I think the most powerful way that God Creates transformational knowledge of Him is through pain. It's through pain. There's something about a painful experience that just doesn't leave us. And the reason, for some of us in the room, the reason why we have a transformational knowledge of God was not because of a youth event or because of our own perseverance, but because God allowed pain into our lives. And that pain has transformed our hearts to know him more deeply. And that pain can be because of the sin of someone else or it can be because of your own sin. And in God's sovereignty, he has allowed the pain, Genesis fifty twenty. he has taken what the enemy meant for evil and he has turned it for our good. Because he has resurrection power, even sin doesn't stay as sin, but sin ends up turning to holiness and to life. So please know when I, I pray this prayer over my kids at night, I know what I'm asking. I know that I am opening my kids up to a kind of pain that as a father I don't want them to ever experience. I've walked in that debilitating, guilt-wrenching, shame ridden kind of pain. I don't want that for my kids, but here's what I've come to know through my own journey. That pain is nothing compared to knowing God. It's nothing. Give me the pain again if I get more of God. Paul says even the good things he has to offer are rubbish. They're a garbage heap compared to knowing the power of Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that pain is a momentary affliction that the cost is worth it to know Jesus more fully. So when we pray this over our church, when I pray that our church would know God intimately and transformationally, trust me, I know what I'm opening us up to. But I also know on this side of that kind of pain, there's nothing, nothing better than knowing God like that. Because in every valley I've walked since that pain, every time that I've walked through more pain and more struggle, you know what's at the top of my mind? I have a hope in the calling. I have riches in his inheritance. And I have power in the resurrection. And I will take that any day at the age of 40 compared to what I thought I knew of God at 35. So yeah, I want that for us. I want us to be a people who, emotionally and transformationally know God because the valleys are coming. Death is coming. Pain is coming. Economic collapse is coming. And the children of Jesus, the children of God, will be marked by the hope of their calling, the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints, and the resurrection power that runs through their veins. And I want that for my wife and I want that for my kids and I want that for us. This is what Paul is praying for the church at Ephesus. C.S. Lewis says it this way. So, God whispers to us in our pleasure. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. And if you're here this morning in the midst of pain, in the midst of pain caused by the sin of someone else or by your own sin, I need you to know God approaches those two things the same way and he brings life from death. And if you're ridden in guilt because of what you've cost your family, please hear me in this. It's not over. It's not over. The resurrection power of God doesn't need your cleanliness. He just needs your brokenness and he will rebuild. He will bring life from death. What I'd like to do, I just wanna spend a couple minutes here just praying for us. I want us to reflect, respond to it. Then I'm gonna give us some time to pray. And we'll cover that here in a second. If you just bow your heads and close your eyes and let's just, I want this to sit a little bit. I want, I would hope, I'm guilty of moving from Friday to Sunday and not sitting in Saturday. So I think what we first have to wrestle with as children of God is, is he who he says he is? For some of us this morning, we don't have any knowledge of God. And that's not that's not your fault. Like God has ordained this time, this moment to reveal some things to you. And here's what I think for many of us, what God's revealing to us this morning, is that you are a sinner and you are guilty. And there is a distance between you and God. And you've tried to fill it, you've tried to become whole and find peace within yourself, but nothing's worked. And in his grace, he's allowed you to not experience wholeness. Because the gift of the gospel, the gift of salvation is this, that if you would confess that you're a sinner, that you have failed God, you are far from him, and that you would believe that Jesus gave his life as a perfect sacrifice to bridge that gap, you would just admit your a sinner, believe that he is who he says he is, and confess that Jesus is Lord, confess that he's what you need, then you too would find an inheritance. You too would become a child of God. And what you're longing for in the world would be met in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And you can do that right now in your seat. You can just pray to the Lord, confess to him that you're a sinner, that you're aware of it, you know it, you're admitting it, that for some reason this morning, you're finally believing that Jesus is enough. And you want to walk with him, and he will gladly welcome you home as his son or his daughter. I also believe there's more of us, though, this morning who um, maybe we have the IDO, the head knowledge of the Lord, but we've never actually given ourselves to the transformational knowledge of our hearts of God. And you know who you are, and you know because you've gone through the valley, you've been through dark places, and, and you know what comes to the top of your mind. If you're in one right now, what comes to the top of your mind? Is it your own shame and your own guilt and what you've done to cause the situation? Is it your own pride and the things that you've accomplished? If there's been a transformational knowledge of God, then what comes to the top of our mind is the hope of our calling, the glorious inheritance, our worth in Him and the resurrection power that runs through us. So I I wanna pray this prayer over us, I'm gonna give us some time to pray. God, I um, I come to you this morning. You're here with us, you're meeting with us, and in the the spirit of Paul, in the words of Paul, um, as leadership here for our church, God, here's here's what we're praying. That you would um, give us all wisdom and revelation to intimately know the heart of you, And that you would do that by opening the eyes of our hearts, that we might know the hope of our calling, we might know the glorious inheritance in the saints, and we might know the resurrection power that you've given us as the church. Lord, do it however you want to. We believe it's more important than anything else. So work, please. For those of us who... um, Our perspective needs to shift in that, oh, this is what you're doing. This is what you're working in me. God, would you give us the grace and strength to see it from that perspective this morning, to see our pain and our pleasure as ways that you're bringing us to an intimate knowledge of you. Pray that we would be marked by that. In Jesus' name, amen. And Daryl's gonna come up in a few minutes to close this out, but I, I wanna give us a few minutes in this way. I wanna challenge um, leaders of our households So fathers or single mothers or maybe maybe mom, you're the only believer in your house. Have you prayed this for your family before? Like I know you've prayed that God would protect your kids and he would help them in school, help them find good friends, be successful academically and financially, but have, have you prayed this for them? And I know I what know I'm asking, I know what's out there. What's out there is that it might cause pain to answer this prayer but I believe it's worth it. I believe it's better. So heads of household, dads, single moms, moms, maybe you're here with your small group and have you ever prayed this for your small group? Maybe you've prayed for a number of prayer requests, but you've never actually hinted at this. I'm gonna give us some time to do that this morning. If you're here with roommates, you're here with friends and you've never prayed this for your friends. The altar is open for this, and there's nothing special about the altar, but for some of us, we need an Ebenezer, like we need an altar moment to, uh, to transformationally remember something. And so this is open for us. We're just gonna be, sit here while the keys play, while Nate plays on the keys, and we're just gonna sit for a few minutes and just spend some time in prayer. Dads, if you wanna pray out loud for your family, huddle them up together and pray with them, I think it could be powerful. So feel free to pray.